Let's take our Bibles, if you have them, please, and open to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Uh, We continue our study through this book. The series is entitled Plan A, and it is a journey through the book of Acts, and it's called Plan A because what we find in the book of Acts is that God's plan A for His mission purpose on this planet and in, in us and in His people is the church. The church is plan A, and there is no plan B. Now, I want to ask you, do you think that Satan knows that the church, and when I say church, I'm speaking local church, like us, a local church, and the universal church is always expressed in local communities of faith. Do you think Satan knows the local church is God's plan A? It's a serious question. Do you believe that, that, that he knows that? Oh, yeah. He knows that it's plan A. And so he's going to do everything he can to thwart, stop, subvert the church. We have a real enemy of the church. Now, in our study through Acts, we're not going verse by verse as we normally do, but we're going to take sections over all the way through Easter that, that highlight, if you will, plan A, what the church is, what the church is to be about, how she's to organize and live. And we'll pick up another text along those lines today, but we have come so far in our text that we've seen at least two ways that the enemy of the church has attacked the church, okay? The first one is persecution, no surprise. Uh, You know, early on, we're in chapter, uh, Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, and we see that the religious leaders come against the church, jail the apostles, beat them, threaten them, Seek to discourage them, if I can use it that way, discourage them, and it does not work, and the church moves on. So persecution and discouragement would be one way the enemy comes against the church. The second is the one that Rob covered last week, and uh, this one, I'm just going to call it deceit, okay? Deceit, and this is what Satan always does. He lies. Father of lies. Rob talked about that. And so Rob took this passage last week uh, where uh, if you missed it, I can't encourage you enough to watch it, Uh, but we've got the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and and this story tells us that one of the ways the enemy attacked the church was to make the church, the people in the church, think less of sin than we need, Uh, to not take sin seriously, right? And so here, they're deceived into believing that sin doesn't matter, and they lie, They're, they're deceitful, they lie to the Holy Spirit, is what the text tells us, because they sold the land, but they didn't give all the money. It's not about they didn't give all the money. It's not about how much they gave. It's about the fact that they said it was everything, and it wasn't. They lied, and y'all, they dropped dead. Remember that? They, they dropped dead right there. When they asked them, you tell the truth, they said they were telling the truth. They were lying. Boom. Now, the reason I tell you to watch the message is, is number one, because I had someone tell me this week, and someone I really respect, they said that uh, Rob's message last week was perhaps one of, if not the most spot-on message that this guy has heard from the pulpit at Fellowship. And I, I watched it, and I, went, I have to agree with him. It was, it was really good. The other reason I want you to watch it is it could save your life, right? Just kidding. Uh, but uh, we know that's not normative, that we, we would all be dead if, uh, if, we, fellow, if we lied and, and, and we were held account for that. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, 
it was a, it's an attack on the church to deceive, okay? So you've got, so you've got persecution, you have deception. And in our text today, I'm going to pick it up in chapter 6, 1 to 7, we've got this third arrow or this third attack on the church. And uh, while, you know, most of us aren't going to be persecuted, you all, in the sense that they were, most of us aren't going to be thrown in jail, I don't think, in our lifetime and told, I'm going to beat you up again if you keep talking about Jesus. It's not going to happen. We're not going to fall over dead because we lie because that is not normative per se, but there is not a church on the planet that does not deal with this third attack. And I'm going to call it dissension. Dissension. If there's persecution, then there's deceit, and there's there's dissension in the body. We cannot escape it. It's a dissension within the body that leads, honestly, it's, you can come up with all kinds of terrible words, disunity, discord, and honestly, it, it ultimately leads to death, the death of a church. It happens all the time. Now, that's, that's pretty weighty, and the passage is, but let me tell you the good news. When, 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 when the enemy of the church, Satan, attacks the church here in Acts 6 with dissension, the way that the church resolves the dissension actually leads to greater fruitfulness, greater impact, and greater glory for God. It's amazing to see this happen. It does and it will. And I believe this. As we live in the same way as they did here, listen, dissension won't destroy us. Uh, It'll do some pretty amazing things, in fact, if we walk through it according to the Bible. Okay, the, the, the passage is really, really simple. It's a problem, a solution, and the results. It's a problem, it's the solution, and then it's the results. And I'm going to invite us to consider how, how do we live it? What does it mean for us? Let's start with the problem, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Let's stop there. Here's the problem. Two groups of people, the Hellenistic Jews and then the native Hebrews. Start here. They're all Jewish. This is not Gentile Jewish. This is Jew-Jew. The Hellenistic Jews were those who grew up outside of of, of Israel proper, outside of Jerusalem. These are, these are people that were dispersed in the diaspora when, when, when Israel was kicked out of the land. They live in all these Greek and Gentile lands, and they grow up Greek. They speak Greek. They think Greek. They're culturally Greek. And now they're coming back to Israel, and they're bringing all that with them. But they're Jewish, okay? And so then you've got that native Hebrews. Who are they? Well, it's, they're the native Hebrews. They never left. They've stayed in the land. I was born in Jerusalem. I've never left Jerusalem. I'm a Hebrew. And, and what's sad and interesting in this is that when those who were Hellenistic Jews came back to Israel and then became Christ followers, okay, and then these Hebrews that were Jewish became Christ followers, the Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews were in one church, And they didn't always get along. 
You'd, you'd hope that, that, that Christ and the gospel would have changed all that in their hearts and that they would come into church and it would not be, Where'd you, where are you from? You sound Greek to me. No, no, I'm, 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 I'm a Christian. I'm Jewish, I'm a Christian. No, okay. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they had these racial tensions, ethnic tensions. And, and I want to say, it's, it, I, I love it because it's so real. This is true. This, the, the early church didn't, everybody's hunky-dory, you know, kumbaya, and everybody loves each other. No, they brought racial tensions within the church itself. And it would take the Spirit of God at work in them to resolve those differences. And part of that resolution actually occurs when a dissension within the two arises. I think we can be actually encouraged by that. Now, uh, Judaism had a very uh, established protocol for caring for widows. In the law, the Old Testament, you know, widows, if a husband died, a woman in, in these days was pretty helpless financially in terms of resources. And so the, the Old Testament law provided for them. So think about it this way. There's a, there's a, you know, a widow that's Jewish following the law but then they come to put their faith in Jesus. They come to believe, you know, a completed Jew. They come to say, Jesus is the Messiah. He died on the cross for my sins, was buried, raised again. He's the Messiah, and I trust and believe in him. They become a Christian, you see. Now, she's in the church, and that really strong, established procedure for getting help and getting her needs met, she's in the church going, how are you guys going to help me? The church is so young. It, it, it's just kind of, they're just figuring it out as they go. But the church was not going to leave the widows alone, so they were figuring out ways to care for the widows. And this is another thing I love about reading through the book of Acts, you all. Understand that when, when the church began, they didn't have a church planting manual. They didn't have this, this is how you plant a church, and this is what you, they didn't have that. They are, they are figuring stuff out on the fly as they're, Preaching the gospel. They go, what do we do now? We got all these, I, I don't know, let's pray. Let's figure it out. The Holy Spirit will show. Okay, let's do this. So they figure it out as they go. So they got a need with the widows and they figure it out. Does that make sense? So the Hellenistic Jews, they come to, to, to find out that some of their widows, when they come to, to get their daily bread, so to speak, that they were being overlooked by the people who were handing it out. Now, you're going to have to trust me on this. They probably didn't, hand out literal bread. I, I think that what was happening is that they, were, they would come to the church and the church would give a widow some money and would use that money then, okay, that she could eat for a week or provide for herself. So this makes sense. So I, I'll show you why in a moment, but I think it's that they were giving, that, giving the widow money in order to meet her needs. Now, I've got a question for you. Who in this story, was responsible for giving the widows their money for bread. Do you know? So they came to the church, the, and, they, and the money would be given to them for the bread. Who was responsible for giving this money to the widows? Somebody say, take a guess. Rabbis, the rabbis are in the temple, so this, we're in the church now. It's not going to be the rabbis. The apostles. The apostles. Well, 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 Lloyd, why do you say that? Because in chapter 4, 34 and 35, it says, many people sold their lands, sold their homes, and they brought this big sum of money to the apostles. And it says, and the apostles distributed it as any had need. I, I think it's the apostles. So, 
Lloyd, what's the big deal? The apostles giving out the money. Well, here's the big deal. Their complaint was against the leadership. It wasn't just Joe over here is not taking... No, it, it was a complaint against the Satan, Satan in, in a sense, and w- within them, they were tempted to do this, and they did it. They complained against the apostles. Now, I don't know, I don't think that the apostles are purposefully skipping over the Hellenistic widows. I, I don't know, but I would not think that. The point I'm trying to make is, is that it was against the leaders of the church. And I think this really makes sense when you think about the fact that if Satan wants to stop the church, uh, destroy the church, harm the church, whatever, he, he really does go after the leaders. Not just me or Rob or elders. I'm talking about those who lead in the church. I'm, not, I, I'm only saying that to just kind of throw out a little warning for all of us to be aware of. Now, the word for uh, complaint here is the same word translated in the Old Testament as murmuring, grumbling. You remember when God brought Egypt out of, or brought Israel out of Egypt and the people didn't have any water, didn't have food? What did they do? They went to Moses and they, what? Grumbled, they mumbled. This is the same word here. They complained, but it's, it's, this, it's the idea literally of, of murmuring. Uh, it literally means a complaint made in a low and an indistinct tone. That's what murmuring is. It's, and it, it's like, you know, you don't go and say, let me tell you exactly what I'm upset about. It's actually you go and go, because you, you don't want everyone to know, right? You're just going to tell someone that you're upset and you're complaining. Why? Because this murmuring, you see, Murmuring, we murmur when we complain about something to someone who can do nothing about it. Is anybody guilty of murmuring? And you don't have to put your hand up. I mean, I, everyone's hand ought to go. Mine's up. We murmur when we grumble to someone about something or someone based on perception and assumptions, but not on fact. Did you, did you know they did that? I know, I, I know. I saw them do that. I'm, I'm ticked. Man, me too. Did you, you saw it too, Susan, didn't you? I, I know. They don't know what they're doing. I'm, see, we got this little group here that now agrees they're wrong. <laughs> see, that's grumbling. That's murmuring. Have no idea the facts. That's just, that's what I saw too. Yeah, I think they did that too. I think, I think, I think. But no fact. That's, that's the grumbling and the murmuring. See, so when, when Luke uses this word, a complaint arose, he's telling us that the Hellenistic Jews were talking to each other. Like we do. Like I do. When I don't get what I want, or I think you've just shortchanged me, or not take... I'm generally, the, you know, I'm going to go, man, I can't believe it did it. Can you? No, I can't either. But I'm not talking to the one who could do something about it. Guilty as charged. There's the problem. Okay, here's the problem going on. How about the solution? Verses 2 through 6. Follow along in your Bibles. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select among, from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, he, he extrapolates a little bit on Stephen because Stephen's story is getting ready to come up, so that's why he's telling a little more about him. And Philip. Philip, by the way, is going to play into the story a little bit later. The rest of the guys, we don't even know who they are. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, a Gentile who became a Jew, who became a Christian. And these seven men, they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Now, this is where I want to explain this idea that they were giving money. Uh, that word for tables, okay, we, we're, we don't believe it's best for us to serve tables. That word can mean a table for a meal, the dining room table you ate Thanksgiving dinner on. Or it is also used uh, to describe uh, the money changer's table, a counter by which money exchanges hands. Now, the reason I think they were given the money is because of that, because it can be used that way, because it says here, uh, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. It doesn't say to give out bread. And by the way, in chapter one, in verse 1, where it says the widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food, those words are italicized in my Bible. And whenever they're italicized in my Bible, the New American Standard is what we teach from, that means it's not in the original Greek. So even the first verse literally says uh, they were being overlooked in the daily serving, okay? So that's why I'm saying it was, it was the money given out. And, and the point I was making on that is that it was the leaders they were complaining against. It was the leaders. And, and, and to, not to belabor the point, but Satan is more like Mel Gibson, okay, in The Patriot than the British counterparts. And what do you mean by that? Anybody remember the Patriots? Some of us do. You know, the Revolutionary War. But, uh, you know, in those days, you all, war... I was talking to my brother about this. He's a retired military officer. And he said, yes, it's true. He said, in those days, war was... It was almost, in a weird way, it was like a gentleman's game, in a way. And so that's why the officers are always just sitting up there on their horses, you know, and step, sounding proud, and they're just ordering people to go, and the battle's going on. Because, because, because war, at that time, the way it had evolved, so to speak, it's like you don't kill the officers, and, and I'm not going to kill your officers, and you're not going to kill my officers, because if you do, how in the world are we going to have this appropriate battle without the leaders in charge? I'm serious on this. So what does Mel Gibson and, and, and his revolutionaries do? Who do they start shooting? The officers! <laughs> yeah. And it is what Satan does today. It is what he does today. He's going to shoot the leader. He's going to shoot the leaders. And again, not just me, but anyone who leads in the community of faith. The apostles say it's not desirable for them to serve tables. It's not, they're not saying that is so beneath us. Absolutely not. What had they been doing up to that point. What had they been doing up to that point? They had been serving, giving them money. It's not like it's below us to hand out money and make sure the widows are cared for. No, 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 not at all. This word desirable carries the idea of being pleasing, being acceptable. They, they'd come to a place where they said, you know, it's not, it's not pleasing to the Lord for us to be doing that because we must be doing this. This is so normal when you think about it. You know, I've, I've been here for, for almost, you know, over 20 years at the church, planning the church, I can tell you there were things I did early on in our church, and some of you were around then, 
that I don't do today? Is it because I, I, I can't do that? For example, I used to coordinate our learning center. I'm the one who would, early on at the high school, I'd be going, hey, can you do a classroom today? And I would coordinate learning center, whatever. Um, I was terrible at it, by the way, but that's what I did. Do you know what? I don't do that today because I'm above it. No, because I can do that, but I must do other things. I think for most of us in the room, in, in your workplace, men and women, that, that you, you probably have things that you do at work where you know and you actually are very intentional about delegating certain things. Oh, you could do it, but you delegate it because you know in order for the company, the business to go forward, You've got to delegate what you can do so that you have time to do what only you can do and you must do it. Now, this gets into a whole other arena, but I'm going to just throw this out and we'll be able to address it later. But, you know, when you become a Christian, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit indwells you. The person of the Holy Spirit lives in us and we receive a spiritual gift. What does that mean? Well, I'll just shorthand it this way. It means you are, by the Holy Spirit, endowed with a, 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 a skill, a, a gifting, a wiring, a strength that God has now given you to use in a community of faith to strengthen the whole body. Okay? That, that, that's, everyone's, everyone's got one. Do you know what yours is? Because, it, because it's yours and, and, and God has given that for you to do. And this is where, you know, we, I need to help you more to identify that and know that. But how do you know what your gift is? You know how? Let me just throw it out there without doing a seminar. Start serving. And when people come up to you and say, you are really good at that. Every time you do that, I just feel the Lord is speaking through you. You know, whenever you do that, I find myself wanting to follow Christ more. Bingo. You don't even have to take a test. And you'll know your spiritual gift. And you just use it. Now I'm way off the train of thought, but you use your gift. The apostles had the courage and the wisdom to know that there are some things they can do. They can do that. But y'all, there's some things we must do. And I, I would say you must, we must use our gift for the body. And they did that. I'm going to tell you something. Dissension actually, it doesn't disappear, okay? Because it's never going to disappear. We will never be without dissension. Just hang on to that. Uh, but it wanes when the people of God are engaged in their gifting and wiring, serving the people of God. It's almost like, you know, I just don't have time to argue about that. I've got important things to do. And it's true. It's true in the body. It's true in a family. It's true in your business as well. Well, the apostles, what do they do? They, they, they gather a congregation. Y'all, we're talking fifteen to 20,000 people, so they, we, they didn't get everyone in a room and say, give us seven. No, they, didn't. they, they couldn't have done that physically, but some, they, they engaged the congregation in some way where maybe there was a representation of the whole, and they said, identify seven men with these qualities. What are the qualifications? Good reputation, full of the Spirit, Full of wisdom. A good reputation, you, you know what that means. It means that someone would look at that man and go, that guy is reputable. 
He's a good man. He's an honest man. Good reputation. Uh, full of the Spirit. I, I want to do a message one t- time, and we'll do it in January and February maybe, just on the Spirit, because a lot of us don't understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means to be dependent upon the Spirit. So it's got to be a man who lives his life depending upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, whenever the book of Acts shows us someone full of the Spirit, one of the markers is that person just keeps telling people about Jesus. Okay, so that's for sure here we'd go, you know, good reputation, someone full of the Spirit and just speaks of Jesus. And then third, full of wisdom. What's wisdom? Applied knowledge, applied well. Someone who's got experience to apply wisely and well the truth that they know. And the thing that stands out to me, okay, you go boom, 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 got it. Here's what jumps out to me at least, is I look at that and I go, you know, you're not going to know, you're not going to know those three things about seven men unless there's at least seven men in this church who are publicly living out in such a way that it can be seen. Does that make sense? How, how am I going to know unless I know you or, or, or someone knows you or, or you're living in such a way within the community of faith that the community of faith can go, you know, this person, this person, this person meets these. And I'm going to get on the guys at least two times today. The ladies can sit back and just listen. But here's one. I, I think it should be the exception, because there's always exceptions to everything. Let's not be dogmatic. You know, nothing's black and white per se. I think it should be the exception that a man is a member of a church and is not serving in some capacity. That should be the exception. The rule would be that a Every man in a community of faith is serving, giving their life away in some capacity. I'm going to talk more about it at the very end, the last point I'm going to make, you know, why it is they chose seven men. But I absolutely believe that's true. How else would they, you know, unless these men were serving, they wouldn't know these qualifications about them. Now, some think this, these are deacons. Some, some see this passage as the office of a deacon. I don't, and, and others don't. And, and the reason I would say I don't is, um, is later in the New Testament, we see the very specific office of a deacon. Now, in this passage, the, the root word of, of, of deacon, where we get the word deacon, diacono, it's used three times here. But you know what? It's, it's, it's translated serving, serve, ministry. Same, same words, those three ways. And so it's describing what they do, but none of these men are ever called deacons. Just a side note. So I don't think this is the office of deacons. I do think, though, this is in its embryonic form. We're going to see this play out. Does this make sense? That, that later on we're going to see this office, but kind of seeing it here in embryonic form, which makes sense to me because, as I said earlier, they didn't have a rule book. Oh, it's time to do deacons now. They didn't have that. They're solving a problem of dissension, depending upon the Holy Spirit and then acting in faith. The problem, the solution, the, the, the apostles put their hands on them, commission them to do it. Look, we've been doing this, now you're going to do this important work. Okay, the result, verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. This is, this is pretty amazing. 
take those three things, the word of God kept spreading, i.e. the, the, the message of the gospel, that who Christ is, it, it continued to go out, which means, wow. So when they made this organizational move, got some clarity around the organization, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, it's like the apostles and others, they, they were able to teach more in the word spread. The, the second it says is the number of disciples continued to increase. Uh, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Okay? So they know our mission is to make disciples. How about this? They go through this dissension. They come out the back end, and it says the number of disciples to c- continue to increase greatly. Look at your Bibles at verse 1. It says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing, got it, that's good. But look at verse 7. The number of disciples continued to increase, what? What does it say? Y'all, you know, so they're going along. This is good. They hit some dissension. They resolve it biblically. They don't keep going along like this. They go like this. And the third thing, a great many of the priests We're becoming obedient to the faith. Now, Luke is setting us up because there's going to be this tension between the the temple and the early church, of course. These priests, probably 15,000, 20,000 of them. It's not the high priest, but it's these, it's like priests that serve in the temple. These men are so connected to the temple. Wouldn't you, you know, it, it, it would be, I think, some of those people that you and I have in our life and we go, there is no way that person will ever put their faith in Jesus. There's just no way. And it says here, after this dissension was resolved, a great many of the priests are coming to faith in Christ. I, I, I think Luke is showing us that having dealt with the dissension in the way they did, man, it's like it was, uh, what, okay, I, I just got this, I, this is so crazy, these thoughts come to me. I, I just got this razor, I just got a new razor, and uh, it, you, can, you can cut your hair, you can do all this stuff with it, but it has a turbo button, so like as if I need it, I need turbo shower to get my hair. Um, but, you know what happened? It's like they resolved the dissension, and the turbo button got hit, and they went stronger, harder in everything that was, everything that God had called them to do. Wow. God didn't just solve the problem. It, he took the problem and turned it for good. couple lessons, okay? Let me, let me land the plane, and then we're going to pray. Uh, number one, this is really, really obvious, but let's not miss it. Number one, dissension in the church is unavoidable. You know, oftentimes resolving a problem means falling in love with the problem in the sense of going, this is real. This is, this is what's happening. Y'all, we will never know this. We will never at this church or any church or you go to another church, it will never be a time when there's no dissension. That's called heaven. That's when you're dead. That's when you're in Christ's presence. There'll never be a time. Dissensions, uh, it, quite frankly, it's unavoidable. Now, I think it's really interesting that that's a fact, and then what God does with it. Because the second point is this. And, and, and why is it a, why is dissent? You tell me why dissension is unavoidable in the church. I'm being serious. Somebody yell out some. Why is dissension unavoidable amongst? 
we're all sinners. The enemy, you know, last time I checked, we're all sinners. And, and we will misunderstand each other. We'll miss each other. The church will disappoint you. You'll disappoint each other. You know, it's just going to happen, okay? So it's unavoidable. Number two, dissension rightly addressed is a path to greater fruitfulness. Dissension rightly addressed is a path to greater fruitfulness. Listen, as we live out the text, dissension actually becomes, it becomes a path to, to more of what we want. Is that crazy? You know, when, when Jesus died on the cross, what did Satan think? I got him, right? Got him. And what did God do? I got you, <laughs> right? And in the same way, I want to say to all of us, this is true in your marriage, in your friendships, in the church. I'm just telling you, this is true everywhere. You're going to have dissension, conflict. But in Christ Jesus, God takes that which we cannot avoid, and when we live through it in the Spirit, He takes this thing that's like, ugh. I mean, I hate conflict, y'all. I run from I'm allergic to it. He takes that, and He actually redeems it such that what you want most in your heart and what they wanted actually becomes more. You get more of what you desire and long for. Watch this. Have you ever noticed, and again, this is in a friendship, in a marriage, that you're going along and, and this is my BFF, this is my best friend, we are so tight. But then you have conflict. And it's like, oh, this is terrible. And then you resolve the conflict. And then you go, this is my best. It's like your friendship goes to another level. And it, I don't know, is this weird? It probably wouldn't have gone to that level of intimacy, deepness, soulness without the conflict. Isn't that crazy? That God uses, let me say this, God uses conflict as a pathway to intimacy. You go to your marriage counselor, that's what they're going to tell you. I'll save you a little bit of money there. Um, <laughs> conflict, resolved biblically, is the path to intimacy. I, I hate that. I want, I want uh, ice cream to be the path to intimacy, you know, or I want something easy, but um, it's not. And this is God in his divine design giving us, quite frankly, I, I, I have trouble saying this, but I'll say it, giving us the gift of conflict and some dissension such that we might experience him more deeply and each other. So, dissension rightly addressed is a path to greater fruitfulness. And then this last one, and, and uh, I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit on this, but I'm going to hit it anyways. Resolving dissension in the church requires men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and wisdom. Resolving dissension in the church requires men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and wisdom. What about the women? No. No, they didn't ask for seven women. Oh my gosh, this chauvinistic, patriarchal culture. No, no, that's not it. 
That's not it at all. Uh, they asked for seven men. Uh, no slight to the ladies in the room. And this is part I'm going to just kind of prick this and not fully develop it. But I will say to you, um, the New Testament letters are going to affirm that God's design for men and women is as unique and special and wonderful and beautiful and different as a man is from a woman, okay? There's male and there's female. And in the church, God is going to show us that his design for leadership, and when, I, and when I say leadership, please hear this, servanthood, serving in the church, is that there are certain offices and roles that are for men only. Now, you can go to a different church and hear this differently, but this is what we believe the Bible teaches. That would be the role of what I'm doing now, and that is a teaching pastor and elders. It's, it's for a man. Now, I'm not saying these are t- deacons, teaching pastors, elders, but there's something happening here, I think, that will be developed further in the New Testament. And, and when Paul says the reason for that, he's going to say because this same principle holds true in marriage. Some of you might be going, oh my gosh, he's going to go there. Well, I'm going to go here. I'm going to say, you know, Ephesians says as the husband is the head of the wife, so Christ is the head of the church. You know, I believe that that says that the husband has a distinct role in the marriage as, as the, I'm going to say it, the, the, the primary servant, the primary slave in the marriage. That's the man. And the woman has her distinct role and responsibility as well in support of that man and submission and you hear that and you go oh my gosh he said that and i'm not it's not submission it's 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 honoring and living fully as a female and as a woman i'm just telling you this is what the bible teaches us and paul's actually going to say now the reason for this is because it's god's design for our good and so women when i say it requires men for this role it's not because you're not qualified it's not because you can't do this like you couldn't hand out the money it's because god has so designed us as male and female and it's reflected in the church that we have distinct roles equal value distinct roles equal value Distinct roles. And Paul's actually going to say, let me tell you, this isn't just a New Testament thing. Paul is actually going to say, he's going to go all the way back. He's going to go, I should go this way. He's going to go all the way back to Genesis. And he's going to cite Genesis. That the man was created first. That it was the man who named Eve. Those are things that distinguish the two. I don't think there's a man or a woman in the room if if you had the opportunity to go back to the garden and experience relationship with a woman or a woman with a man and experience that relationship with that man with God in absolute innocence of the garden wouldn't take it. Because you go, "That, that had to be amazing. You know, we're not fighting, we're not toiling against each other, we're we are, I'm a woman and I'm a man and we are man and woman and we're with God and we're distinct and it's amazing. I think all of us would say, if you could go back to the garden and experience that, wouldn't you say, I'd love to experience that? Well, let me tell you something. Man and woman in the garden with no sin were distinct in their roles. 
in the garden. There, were, there was role distinction in the garden. I just cited one where the man named the woman. That's a sign of authority, quite frankly. That was true in the garden. And so God says, what's true in the, what's true in the garden, that's true in marriage. And y'all, it's true in the church. And so I just went over on time and everything else, but it's, it's not, I'm not saying this text is totally teaching it, but I think the text touches on it, and I think it's worth us touching on it as well. They asked for seven men. Which is why I said to every man in the room, it's not about attending a church. It's, not about, it's about you being a man in the church. It's like, we need seven of you to die to yourself. That's what it is. Do I have seven men who, who will die to themselves for the good of the church? That's why the challenge, that's why I gave it to us. And that's what's before us. Okay. Let's pray. And I'm going to ask you to start your prayer by saying, Spirit of God, would you show me what, what I am to do with this truth? What, 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 do I, how do, what do I believe and what am I to trust and act upon? Is there anything, is there any dissension I need to move toward? What would the Spirit have you do? Ask Him. And then I want to ask you to pray for our church. We're, we are not immune and never will be. But would you pray, just like we prayed together for 40 days, would you pray that we as a church might engage dissension biblically and might bear the fruit even as they did? Father, thank you for your word to us this Lord's Day. I join everyone in this room and ask of you, by your spirit, help us to engage dissension that we might find when resolved and as resolved and in the process of resolving, you would actually change us, change us. And the fruit of that would be your word keeps spreading and more people become disciples to follow you. And even the people that we think would never come to trust you, oh God, only you can open their eyes and you would do that. This is our prayer as a community of faith. In Christ's name, amen.